Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, the week ending Friday the 9th of February 2024. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, Dr. Jen, our favourite scientist and published author, is back and this week she's telling us why dogs wag their tails. And we're also joined in studio by esteemed Australian film director Rob Connolly, talking all about Force of Nature, The Dry 2. I hit the diving board with the kids at Harold Holt's swimming pool and we spoke global affairs with Benoit Campmark. Simonia Baldi dissected the award-winning French film Anatomy of a Fall. Digger was back with a summer debrief and comedian Prue Blake talked us through her town planner existential crisis. Melbourne's own Triple R. Panting with excitement to have Dr. Jen walk through the door. Morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning. I was so looking forward to hearing what you were going to segue uh, with then, and that just that just exceeded all my expectations. Well, and we were spinning around in circles. <laughs> <laughs> Wagging our tails. Since when do you have a tail, young lady? I've been hiding it. But isn't tail wagging like a cool thing to talk about? I really thought, you know, first segment back for the year, shall we go really serious? There's been some important climate change research. I thought, no, nah, bugger that. Mm. <laughs> Let's talk about tails and dogs wagging their tails because I sort of figure whether you have a dog or not, and so many of us do, um, I don't know, tail wagging is just this kind of ubiquitous thing, right? We all see it, we all notice it, we probably all ascribe some particular meaning to it. I don't know, what do we all think? What, is it, what does it mean? If you get home and your dog is furiously wagging its tail, what does They're it mean? They're amped. They're lots of energy. Energy, yeah. yeah. They're thrilled to see you. That's what we like to I think, I put it right? personally. Yeah, yeah. They're like, it's me. <laughs> You're back. I missed you so much. Mm. Why did you take so long? Mm. Um, I'm a good owner, basically. It's a sign that you're on the, doing something right. Isn't it great that we can just turn this into total validation yes. of us being mm. good people? Because a dog can't tell us. <laughs> so we can just no. assume the very, very best. Mm. Anyway, so this new paper came out in January where people did a big review of 100 different papers to try and work out what do we know about dogs wagging their tail and also what don't we know. And it turns out there's heaps of stuff we don't know, which I'll tell you about later, which I think is really cool. But the key things to know is that domesticated dogs, A, there's a ton of them, so we've got lots of information. Um, There's more than a billion domesticated dogs in the world, Mm -hmm. more than cats, which people often argue, and the more cats, more dogs. Um, And dogs wag their tails much more than closely related species like wolves, even if they've both been reared like domestic animals. So if you have a wolf puppy that you rear like a dog, it doesn't wag its tail like a dog does. So that's the first thing to know, that this is something that's come through the domestication process when we domesticated dogs. And that happened somewhere between about 15,000 and 50,000 years ago, best guess about 35,000 years. And if you think about the difference between a wolf and a dog, there's been a whole lot of changes, obvious things like lots of dogs have flies ears, they have curled tails, they have finer faces, things that we like. We've um, domesticated them to be more docile, um, you know, more friendly, all that sort of stuff. But really interesting process because we've ended up with dogs and humans being in this incredibly important bond that's probably changed us. One argument for why um, dogs have such a great sense of smell and relatively we don't, even though we have, you know, we're mammals and we have big noses, is that we could rely on dogs to do the smelling for us and we didn't mm-hmm. need to. But equally, dogs have evolved to, you know, um, tailor themselves to us, I guess. So this big study 
basically said there's two possibilities that dog wagging or tail wagging, not dog wagging, <laughs> tail wagging could have evolved just as a byproduct of us um, selecting dogs that were particularly docile and tame. And we didn't particularly like tail wagging. It just came along for the ride um, as some sort of genetic linkage. And there's evidence from some um, fox breeding that suggests that being tame and, and docile and friendly might be linked genetically to a wagging tail. But the other possibility is that we actively selected to breed from dogs who wag their tails because we really like it. And research has shown that the pleasure centres in our brain light up around kind of rhythmic things, you know, music, the pounding of horses' hooves. I don't know, like I like mm. wag tail wagging. What about you guys? Like, yeah, it's, kind of it's like nice. an adorable pendulum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like we like metronomes. We like pendulums. We like it. So we don't. So the first thing to say is we don't know. We don't know how it evolved, but it's certainly there um, and it's very obvious. But the main thing is that we think it's about language. It's about communicating. And there was one suggestion that maybe dogs evolved to wag their tails because people find barking annoying. Okay. So dogs might bark less and wag more, just like we can talk with our hands. Mm. Maybe dogs are communicating with their tail, which I don't know. That means I just want there to be dog sign language. Mm. Yeah. 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 How cool would that be? Count them like Morse code. Count their legs. <gasps> oh, I mean, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's possible. So the, the, the reason for a tail is what? To protect what's underneath it to shoe flies? I mean, what, what is the reason for a tail? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good thing because lots and lots and lots of animals have tails and they use them for balance they you know some animals have prehensile tails meaning they can grip onto things for other animals yeah it's like swatting away flies but dogs wag their tails more than any other animal which is why you know we can be led to understand that this is about communication and that it has actively been selected for because otherwise you know if dogs needed their tail for swatting away flies we'd expect to see it just as much in wolves Mm. as we do in dogs What, what could be like the most disappointing thing you could learn about the dog like trying to communicate with their tail, like telling us to shut up or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe no be, we'd, be, we'd be devastated. Maybe it's rage. Yeah. But, I mean, we know, like think about it, if you see a dog come up to a bigger dog or an aggressive dog, dogs tend to put their tail low, um, mm. you know, and between their legs and maybe wag it a little bit but quite low. So it's certainly a way of kind of showing submission. Um, they've done studies where they deny dogs food and the dogs wail, wag their tail more when a person comes in, which you can mean, you know, decide then means it's a, it's a way of making a request. You're here, I need food. If I wag my tail, presumably you'll notice me and maybe take pity on me. So there's definitely communication going on. But one of the coolest things that I found out or that they found out in this study was that dogs wag their tails asymmetrically. <gasps> So if there's a dog that's come up against something that it feels positive towards and it wants to go towards and it feels safe with, then it'll wag its tail more to the right side of its body. (sighs) Whereas if it's come across something that it's frightened of or or anxious about or just not sure about, it'll wag its tail more to the left side of its body. Really? Yeah. And I don't know how big the asymmetry is. Like I don't know if we're talking slow-mo video that you then kind of get your ruler out on your phone screen or something, but it's been shown repeatedly that that asymmetry is true. And the interesting thing is that dogs can pick that up in other dogs. So if you show a dog a video of a silhouetted dog where the tail is either slightly wagging more to the right or the left... The real dog watching the video of the silhouetted dog can pick it up and determine whether it feels like, you know, this is something safe, I should go there because this dog is showing me everything's okay, or no, this dog is showing me that that's something that I should be a bit nervous about Mm. and anxious about. That is cool communication. That's extraordinary. And it's the dog's left? 
It's the dog's right or left. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So you want to be videoing your dog from behind, <laughs> working out <laughs> if the tail's going more. Mm. Quote unquote, right Dr. Left. Jen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that wasn't the best way to say it. But, um, but yeah, and, and there was a study with beagles where they had a person working with beagles and over the period of time as the dog got more familiar with the person doing the experiments, the tail, the dog shifted from wagging its tail more to a, to a, um, from a left bias to a right bias, showing that over the period of getting to familiar with that, you know, that researcher, they became more and more comfortable. Hmm. So I guess what you really want to do is when you get home and check your dog furiously wagging their tail, you want to work out if it's leaning more to the right or leaning more to the left because maybe that tells you whether you're getting home and they're saying I love you I love you I missed you I'm so glad you're home or why did you take so bloody long so we're looking at the swoop span of the tail (laughs) (laughs) and yes swooping out further you heard it here first everybody the swoop span that sounds like a very highly technical word (laughs) all adopt I and do you do we suspect that the tail wagging is entirely unconscious or, or whatever the scientific term might be. Well, that is an awesome question. So they, you know, they came up with a whole list of things. You know, this is what we know, and and other stuff I haven't talked about about cortisol levels. You know, how stressed is a dog, and how do stress levels relate to tail wagging and stuff. But they also, in this paper, came up with a whole list of the things that we don't know. And one of them is we really don't know which parts of the dog's brain are activated when it's wagging its tail. We don't know if it's something that's somewhat conscious. Like you think about you breathing, you have you can't stop yourself breathing but you have some conscious control over how often you breathe how deeply you breathe versus blushing which is something I talked about on this show years and years and years ago and the fact that blushing is not under any conscious control you cannot will yourself to blush Mm. and you cannot prevent yourself blushing if you are triggered to blush and we don't know which of those two is likely for for dogs we don't know if they just can't help but wag their tail Mm. or if they're deciding to wag their tail I mean I feel like if I think about our dog who is an absolute crazy tail wagger I feel like there are times she absolutely wags her tail to get our attention but maybe there are other times particularly if she's out and about and confronts another dog that she just can't help it I mean it's fascinating the fact that we don't really know what is going on in a dog's brain at all when they wag their tail even though that's you know there's a billion dogs out there and many of us have dogs we love and interact with daily um, I just think that's really cool like is it the communication part of their brain that's activated is it um, I don't know, like there's all different parts of the brain. We know a lot about mammalian brains. We should be able to work out a bit more about what a, wa- a wag means based on which part of the brain is, you know, is firing up. Yeah, and you make me reflect on the dogs that I know where it's like, oh, yeah, the wanting food tail wag. Is yeah. it distinct from the other wags mm. of yeah, is there a slower, you know, oscillation? <laughs> <laughs> I think there are. I I think there absolutely are. I think Mm. there are totally different wags. And the fact that humans and dogs have been co-evolving for probably at least 15, 20, 35,000 years and they need to communicate with us Mm. and presumably there are times when a dog barking is a real problem, particularly if you're out and you don't know if the people over there are friends or foes Mm. and, you know, like... And if if anyone's ever watched Muster Dogs, you know, the sort of level of communication uh, somebody who's out there... Um, farming with their dogs. I mean, it's extraordinary the, the, the level of training mm. and communication mm. that goes on. Just beautiful. I mean, dogs are super smart and they've evolved to connect with us. So mm. if you've got a tail and you can wag it and it can explain things, 
Great. You know, why wouldn't you evolve to use it? Mm. And if dogs ever learn their human passive aggression, they could <laughs> withhold the tail wag when you come in to make you feel terrible. Oh, that just hurts my heart. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, it's just very exciting to have you and you can fill in your own jo- and You can video us from behind as you leave as well. Can't wait. I'm here. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Triple R. Robert Connolly is a writer, director and producer whose feature film credits include The Bank, starring David Wenham and Anthony LaPaglia, $3, which won the AFI Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, Paper Planes, which earned Robert Best Original Screenplay, and 2019's The Dry, based on Jane Harper's novel and starring Eric Banner, and which is the 15th highest grossing Australian film of all time. Now, the director is back with a follow-up, Force of Nature, The Dry 2, about a corporate retreat that goes horribly wrong, and to tell us about it, the acclaimed filmmaker joins us now. Robert, welcome back. To Triple R. Thank you. Great to be here. Tell us uh, about this progress from the dry to this film. Was it uh, as, as you're making the dry? like I can't wait to do the next one, or how? How did how big did this project loom in your mind? We didn't even think about it. We we were so um, immersed in making the first film, and every Australian film that gets made is a miracle. Mm. So it, it, to even consider there could be a sequel was not on the cards. Uh, we finished the film, then I went off to WA and made the film Blueback from Tim Winton's book, and then I came back and sat down with Eric and we said, well, you know, The Dry's been a big hit, should we look at this book? And we just loved it. Like, uh, looking at the second book, it's set in a completely different world, in the bush, in winter. You know, Eric's character goes on this massive journey, but what we, re- Eric and I just could not believe this story of five women in the bush lost and only four come out, and... Actually, Eric was like, who's going to play them? Mm. <laughs> I love that he was initially, from the very beginning, not wondering about his own character, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but wondering about the other characters. And that, and then um, we went to Jane Harper and said, what do you reckon? And that, that began the journey. Very mm. exciting. And it's peculiar, isn't it, that the d- disparate climates in the Mallee, the dry and in the Alpine region, is they're not far from Melbourne, either of them, are they, necessarily? That's one of the gifts of living in Melbourne. I mean, I, I grew up in the Blue Mountains outside of Sydney and I moved down here about 12 years ago and I could not believe it. Like, from here... Uh, with Triple R Studio, within an hour you can be in the Dandenong Ranges in, you know, Sherbrooke Forest and in subtropical rainforest. Mm. You know, the Otways where we filmed, two hours from here, that incredible waterfall or Mm. the Yarra Ranges, um, Latrobe Valley. I fell in love with this area up there called the Ada Tree, this beautiful ancient forests that you can go to on the weekend. You can go for a day trip, Mm. really. And what is it about nature and the force of nature? How does that impact the story, do you suppose? Well, Jane Harper does it so well in her books that they're all about place, you know. And what I love is because place is a character, the detective mysteries, because it's a character, it helps avoid the trapping of making like a tourism ad. Mm. You know, it feels like the la- like the landscape in this where the women get lost is beautiful, but it's also claustrophobic, you know, high canopies, wintry, misty valleys... And so the emotional experience of watching the film is conveyed as well um, through the landscape rather than just pretty pictures. Although, I must say, my cinematographer got some pretty amazing footage out there. Truly. It looks incredible. What was it like kind of actually filming out there in that location? 
for the actors and the crew? Oh, it was the toughest shoot of my career. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. and a lot of the crew who hopefully are listening today I can (laughs) apologise to in public way for (laughs) taking them into uh, these remote locations in the heart of winter. It was so tough. I mean, beautiful, but tough. And we're talking freezing cold temperatures, pouring rain most of the time, leeches like you have never seen, dense kind of leeches, um, mud, and also filming in tricky places to get to, you know, places where you had to walk in in the dark, a 45-minute walk in in the dark, carrying all your gear, and then as the light came up, start filming. Um, But I love the adventure of Mm. that, and I think audiences want something more when they go to the movies. They want like a visceral authentic experience i mean we've had decades of green screens and you know visual effects so yeah and as you say it's designed for cinema that's right Mm. yeah yeah so it's like um the success of streaming has thrown down the gauntlet to filmmakers going hey you can stay home watch all this great stuff so you filmmakers you've got to make stuff people have to see at the cinema so we shoot on big large format lenses we have big music big actors go for big dramatic themes because otherwise you could watch it at home. So I think the dry and force of nature and blueback as well come out of a, a kind of aesthetic approach that we're taking to make big movies. Were you caught off guard at all by the conditions? Did you, was it harder than you predicted? Were you in over your head a bit? Yeah, without a doubt, you've nailed it. I, I think there's that kind of naive innocence that you go into any film with. You think, oh, yeah, we can do this. Nice and, little waterfall. Huh. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> Actually, I love the waterfall at Hopeton, you know, um, which is incredibly beautiful. But, you know, I'd been down there in summer. You know, mm. there were people swimming under the waterfall. I thought, this is really <laughs> idyllic. And we turned up there two days before massive storm twice as much water as we were expecting Mm. (laughs) freezing cold Uh, but so beautiful what does that do for the rapport between cast and crew I mean I imagine chemistry is very important to have but was there a point where everyone was kind of resenting each other because they were stuck in these really torrid conditions I think it's it's interesting I think the opposite happens Mm. you know it kind of bonded everyone Mm. And Deborah Lee Furness, who is an icon of our national cinema and in The Five Women, she led the group. And I think because she was so, like, up the front, come on, everyone, here we go, (laughs) it kind of made – it would have been embarrassing to complain. And I think Eric's Mm. the same. You know, he turns up every day, one of the most professional, disciplined actors that I've ever worked with, and he – leads from the front too. I think the, the inner cr- you know, group of crew that we worked with were so bonded by the end of the experience and, you know, then becoming, I, I guess, able to appreciate how beautiful it is mm. because you've got over the initial shock of, oh, okay, this is what the next seven weeks are going to be like. <laughs> you've said previously that uh, an idea that a film is written three times on the page during the shoot and in the edit. Which of those phases is the most precarious? Look, it's really, I think, the key to how cinema works. I think there's a lot of discussion about, oh, scripts need to be more developed, they need to be more developed. And so the industry puts a lot of emphasis on on the page, the script on the page. But I think as my career's got you know, further along, I've become more capable of improvisation and exploration while you're shooting. But the edit is the key. Mm. Three time frames in this film, like the dry, well, it's actually the dry was two time frames, so degree of difficulty high. 
and you don't want audiences to be confused. It's it's a cryptic puzzle of a film. It's a detective mystery. You want audiences to go, oh, I could work that out. Or, but someone early in my career said there's a difference between cryptic and confusing. You do mm-hmm. not want your film to be confusing. And so in the edit, we spent a lot of time on that. And I, I would say of, of the dry and force of nature, the post-production stage has been the the most tricky. Mm. Are you an Agatha Christie fan or have you become a murder mystery nut? Yeah, look, I, as a kid, you know, my mum had all the Agatha Christie's lying around the house. I was a very early reader. I kind of miss that I don't read as much as I used to. And I'd read all the classic Agatha Christie's. And, and there's a nod in uh, Force of Nature when Eric Banner's character, I don't want to give too much away, mm-hmm. but when he gets the women together around the fire and says, one of you is not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That was like a little personal homage to those books that I read as a young nine, ten-year-old. I love that. And what about your role as writer? Do you feel confident? What's your relationship with the novelist Jane Harper adapting? What's that collaboration like or the permission granted? Yeah, look, Jane is incredible. Like She gives us amazing freedom and trusts us. And it's funny, it's probably like the way I bring up my kids. If you show trust to them, you're hoping that they'll respect you a bit more. You know? mm. And I'm sure Jane shows trust to me and sets the bar high. You know, I trust that you will be true to this book. Um, but Eric and I always laugh, you know, we're, the truth of it is we're just scared of all of Jane's fans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she has got an incredible fan base and they're, you know, and it's a trick. You need the film to work for them and you also need to, the film to work for a new audience. Uh, someone at one of the Q&As we did the other day asked whether you could actually watch Force of Nature first and then watch The Dry like a prequel. Ah. So, you know, and we made the film so you didn't have to have seen The Dry. And Jane Harper's books are like that as well. But no, I, I'm excited to look to the future and maybe other ways of working with Jane. I think she's one of our great writers. And can I ask as well, so obviously crime thriller, incredibly popular genre, but what do you think... It- makes like Australian crime thrillers kind of more unique and special. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Mm. they're doing so well as books around the world and even the dry as a film, Mm. you know, travelled so well. I think it's landscape. Yeah. And I think that landscape is a character and then you look at the psychology of people in that landscape, it really does um, provide a kind of um, the engine room of the, the narrative, the propulsion of the narrative. And that's not to say that you couldn't uh, build an amazing thriller in our urban landscapes as well, an incredible detective mystery in our urban landscapes. And I've made lots of films from the bank on in cities like um, Mm. Melbourne. But I think at the moment people have a great love of seeing these parts of Australia we haven't seen on screen before. Mm. Also think about the idea of a micro-culture, even corporate culture, or the idea of a country town culture and the values and mores that are enforced depending on where you go. Yes, I, I, I agree. I think that if you funnel a story to somewhere specific, it does better. I've always thought that Australia is at its worst, our national cinema, when we try and make things generic and homogenised. Let, let the American studios do that. <laughs> when we're more culturally specific, our films travel better. The world is more interested in us when they can see the specificity of it. That's what happened with The Dry and obviously we hope with Force of Nature is that people are seeing something very 
specific to our understanding. Like for me, having grown up in the bush, it was like, well, force of nature is a love letter to the Australian bush. Mm. And I want the rest of the world to see that potentially huge audiences that have never even been to Australia. So very, you're right, specific. And then if you have a specific community, in this case, you know, five women on a corporate retreat, their community is this corporation that they work in is really interesting. And do you think that uh, the success of the dry and uh, force of nature, we hope, lifts up future Australian films as well? Yeah, look, Australian audiences have always supported Australian cinema. It's interesting. I go back right through my career from being a kid and getting bussed down to from the Blue Mountains to watch Gallipoli, you know, in the late 70s and, you know, right through the, the huge um, impact from Crocodile Dundee and then Strictly Ballroom through Murals. We had that massive phase of, you know, building audiences, huge epic audiences and then our big auteurs, George Miller's got another Mad Max film coming out this year and Basil Ehrman, you know, doing his... So, so the engine room of it has always been very commercial and that allowed a space for me to build a career doing smaller films like The Boys or Balibo and cultural films. And so I think Australian cinema does really well a kind of combination of these small, detailed, beautiful works of cinema and big, epic commercial films. I'm enjoying you know, since the dry pushing into that space with the bigger, massive releases like this. I mean, um, Force of Nature opens this week on... 350 screens around Australia, so it's huge, which is pretty exciting. I didn't see the leeches get any credit. No. (laughs) I think there was a moment where one day I thought, what am I doing? When we had to get removed two leeches from the eyeballs. (laughs) 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 Sorry for your squeamish listeners this morning. That's when I thought... Of an actor or a... Two of the crew. I had one crew member get 17 leeches in a day. It was... I don't want people to be scared of going into the bush. So I don't want this yeah. to be an anti-bush uh, story. But, <laughs> but it's more just to, to say that it's about these women getting lost in the bush and you want the audience to feel... It's a survival story. You want to be watching it thinking these actors are trying to survive us too. Yeah. <laughs> and it gives an authenticity, I think. That's right. Them. Off screen and on. Yes. <laughs> uh, I tell you what. The force of force of nature, the dry two, hits cinemas this week. Three hundred and fifty screens. Thursday, Feb eight. Yeah, amazing. And uh, we've been speaking with the acclaimed writer and director of Force of Nature, Robert Connolly. Great to have you back in the studio. Yeah, lovely to talk to you all. Thank you. Triple R. At the top of the show, we were talking about the Harold Holt swimming pool. I went there yesterday to escape the heat. Also off the back of a recommendation um, from someone who works at Triple R, Sarah, because she had such a – it just got a rave review. She Mm. sent me an email, went through it. I was like, i got to check this out, just a part of kind of expanding my public pool experience. Mm. And overall it was fantastic. And Donna, who was in, also had experience at the Harold Holt pool. Emotional, yeah. That was – more triggering for him and I apologise, I guess, for that. We all have different things come up around these, I don't know, swimming, swimming lessons. How do different municipalities feel about interlopers coming in from different postcodes? That's a great question. To enjoy the fruits of the locals' rates. Is there some NIMBY Mm. NIMBY attitude? I'm a a rate payer. This is my fault. Yeah. Yeah. But then you pay to get in. We do. So it doesn't matter. No, but look, I'm not sure how 
Yeah, how do you take the temperature on that as well? Because you guess crossed the Yarra to get there. Yeah, I did a big drive. Probably wasn't the smartest decision in yesterday's heat. My mm. aircon was struggling. Mm. I had to, like, put a wet towel on the steering wheel. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, it definitely did have, I felt like, a bit of a local culture. I did notice there was a, a lot more sunbathing, like sunbeds were out and people were tanning. There was Yesterday. some deep tans oh, at that's Hold madness. Yeah. What are you doing? And it did definitely feel like it had its own culture because there was the diving board. We are talking about it, the Heritage listed. Um, there's a 10-metre diving board but it is not in use and it's in a bit of a tricky spot. Do they still have the five, five – is it five, seven and ten? Five, seven – yeah. So five metre, seven metre, ten metre? Like t- tower, diving tower? That's what I remember. Yes, yeah, there is, there's a, yep. So you can't, but the 10 metre one, you can't jump off? None of it, none of <gasps> that structure is, so it's like kind of a big concrete yeah, structure yeah. is, can be used, it's not mm. up to standard, but next to it, there is a five metre diving board, a springboard, and then there was, I guess, a three metre. Ah, oh, I think I remember going and there was like a five, a seven and a ten option, yep. and I got to the seven and did it, and couldn't couldn't get further. No, that was too, the rest was too yeah. scary. It is. I was probably eleven the last time I was there. Mm. Okay, so eleven was the last time you. And were the at force Har- with which I hit the water, I lost an earring. I remember, Ow. I'd got these earrings for my <laughs> first communion, and I was wearing them just like little studs. Yeah, and like you know, flew flew down. I think that's what they say when you jump off a high board. And then when I surfaced and got back out of the pool, I realised one of my earrings was missing. And I was like, well, I'm never getting that. You can't possibly swim to the bottom of the pool. Did you pin drop? How did you enter the break? How did you break the water? Yeah, I think I just pin dropped. But I remember I was wearing a T-shirt over my Baileys because I was 11 and self-conscious and that's what you did. And I remember it ballooning out like a big <sighs> parachute and that drawing way more attention to me than Gee. if I'd just worn my Baileys. And then it sounds like you maybe hit the water funny because yeah. you've oh, obviously made some kind of impact. And it's a disaster. You've hit the, w- the water funny. Well, it was – I was actually sitting right behind the diving board, lovely spot in the shade. Mm. So at the back of Harold Holt, there's like – a five-metre deep pool just with the diving boards going into it. So it's quite amazing. And it was like a swim and a show mm. because the kids were talking a big game up on the diving board. There was a lot of chat about, oh, what am I going to do this next one? I'm going to do a backflip. Did anyone do one? Or they all talk? Maybe one kid. There was one kid, Tommy, and it, everyone seemed to know Tommy. And Tommy's like, what should I do this time? You know, should I do a backflip? And then he would get up there and he'd be up there for about five minutes. The The line was really blowing out. Come on, Tommy. Come on, Tommy. And then it always did results pretty much in a pin drop. Nice. What? Off the board, yeah. <laughs> I know. So he was like talking big game. Like wrestling. Like I'm going to be exactly. yeah, trash talking the yeah, diving yeah. board. And it was that dramatic. And then he just pin drops. Then he was pretty much pin dropping every single time. I was like, come on, Tommy. The lifeguard seemed to know him. And so I was just watching. Oh, "Oh, here we go. Tommy's on the board again. All talk Tommy. Yeah, Yeah. all talk Tommy. Big talk, little splash. (laughs) Little splash is good. Yeah. Well, no, true. You get points for that in diving. Yeah. (laughs) True, correct. But um, I wanted to have a go, but it was just all young kids. And so I was watching the line going, when is it at its smallest? When is Tommy not around? When's he gone to get a potato cake? Yeah, so I can slip through quickly Mm. and... 
it was I, I thought I found the right moment. I ran around and the line was in the sun as well, so it was hot mm. and I it, it kind of started to lag and the, the lifeguard wasn't because they got to wait for the other kid to clear. Mm. So they're managing two diving boards side by side. So someone from the third oh, one so jumps and you're like the, the three metres, sorry, and got to wait for them to swim and mm. anyway. But um, it was taking longer than I thought because they're all talking shot, like talking their big game on the board. <laughs> and then this girl in front of me, she would have been maybe like nine. And I'm not proud of this. She said, oh, my friend, would you mind if she comes in front of me? And I was like, and her friend had just jumped off, by the way, off the diving board. And here I am in my 30s standing next to what, 7 to 11-year-olds. And and I go, okay, all right. I go, sure, she can go. But I go, but you can't muck around at the top. Mm. you got to be efficient, don't you? And she's like, oh, yeah, 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 I will. I go, God, what's happening up there? I was like. What's it taking to? What are you kids up to? Yeah, I go, come on, let's let's just be quick. And I'm like, because I had to talk back my game because I was like, all right, but you can't muck around. I like it. And then I was like, and then I kind of backpedaled a little bit. I'm like, is it scary up there? Because I'm like five metres, whatever. I'm sure I've jumped off ten metres before. But I felt a little bit sheepish and a little bit embarrassed. Anyway, I got her on side and everyone moved pretty quickly. But when I got up there at five metres, it's, it's higher than you think. It is. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. So. If you want someone to be, shouldn't they have gone up the ladder at the same time? Yeah. You can't negotiate this on the board. What's mm. her friend doing going in front of her first, jumping off and then coming back for a second go before her friends even had one? That's right. I know. Should that- have asked her. The merits of that friendship. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's using you. Do you have toxic people in your life? Yes. Um, How do you learn diving without – it feels like practising the saxophone. Yes. Like everyone can hear it. There's no such thing as private diving practice. No. How, yes. Well, you go at weird times. Yeah. Mm, early you go in on a the squad where everyone's learning and so it's a, it's a safe space. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. Early or in the evenings, I think I, I would definitely love to go back to Harold Holt, but I, I would love to go midweek. Um, yeah, I think yeah, maybe have a bit more of a play on the diving board. Also the the uh, swimming lanes for the laps. I saw something that I haven't seen in any other pool is a double lane. So they had like where you can swim laps, and it's just I think makes it much easier if you need to overtake someone, which is quite oh, so luxurious. Wider, like a wide lane. Yeah. Um, when you jumped off the board, mm. did you? How did you go? Was it exhilarating? It was exhilarating. You just pin dropped. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was Tommy watching. Oh, Tommy was watching, and as I climbed out, he said, "Pretty good." <laughs> nah, he didn't. But that's what I was hoping. You were for. like, "I hope he was watching." Yeah. If you up that high, is, is a pin drop a wasted attempt? Uh, no, as somebody has not done it, mm. is do you want to push yourself given that you're in the moment? I don't think so. Not with my uh, inexperience with diving. So the danger is that you jump, you, you do a dive, but you, it's so far down that you spin around and flop on your back. Yeah, yeah. you could you could belly flop or back. The timing flop. is so oh, on your back. Yeah, the what's, timing what's is so important. What's a back one called? If a belly flops, a belly flop. I don't know if it has, has a, a back name. flop. I'd a back, say back, back slap. Back slap. <laughs> but that could leave like a burn. That'd yeah, be, that could really hurt. It really hurt. Um, and be. But it's, it's, you know, as long as everyone's okay, it's exhilarating to watch, isn't it? If you see it, you go, ooh, mm. when they come back up and they're okay. And yeah. There's a – I – with my um, – I'll call it a swim club. Sure. Yeah. Friends that are swimming on a Thursday night that I've been to once and realised that I hate swimming. 
hate it. I Great. hate it so much. But I do like seeing friends and I like being in the water. Okay. Um, but I'm going to commit. I'm like, I'm going to try and just build up my tolerance to laps. But at this pool, they have a water slide. Oh, and like we that's all, not reason to go. No, it is because it's not like there's just a, a play area. There's there's a serious 50-metre lap pool, but then there's a kids' area with a water slide and all these fun water things. And my friends and I went the other week and um, like 8 p.m. <gasps> on a weeknight and it was empty and we're like, we all went down the water slide and it was the best. That's fantastic. So I think don't lose, you know, you're in a child. <laughs> no, get there after hours. I like that. And Quickly, what stroke are you kind of – what stroke are you Just going trying freestyle? to stay afloat is my first Great. preference. But I will I will call it freestyle. Mm. Um, but – and of the friends I go with, they've got like special gear. They've got swimming caps and they've got oh, – special, like special gear. It's a swimming it cap is. mod. I, I, <laughs> like they've got special jackets. Goggles. Jackets. Oh, God. Look at them. Watch out. Um, Thongs for the shower. They'll do, they'll do three strokes in a breath. I always find that impressive. Mm. I can't oh. do that. Yeah. So they'll alternate each side. So I guess maybe that's that's good for the, for the neck. But it's freestyle. I tried to do breaststroke and because it seems like it's easier. Yes. But it's so slow and I can't get the little frog kick right. <laughs> it and, is. It's oh. good to go, to go one freestyle and then like one up and back and then a palate cleanser with the breaststroke mm. yeah, to nice. ease your way in, if, I think is what I'd recommend. If we didn't bone the Commonwealth Games, it would have been good oh, to yeah. have. Bloody Commonwealth uh, Games had that. <laughs> <laughs> a demonstration sport and Tommy can get involved and give us a back whacker. Well, that's yeah. what someone said. A back whacker is what a belly flop. Hey, there, there you go. go. And it's it's an Olympic year and Australians are, you know, we're amazing. Our swim team is always incredible. So I think we're going to, you know, it's going to be the place to be, in, the pool. In, instead of the smallest spat, splash, the bigger splash. Yeah. Oh, wins. Yes, biggest splash wins. Yeah, okay, the cannonball com- competition coming yeah. to the Commonwealth Games. Get Prince Charles to open that. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Here to talk global affairs, we're joined uh, again on Breakfasts by international relations academic at RMIT, Benoit Kentmark. Welcome back, Benoit. It's a pleasure being back. Uh, now, you must be working overtime. The global affairs is an incredibly tempestuous space presently. Yes, there's certainly a lot of material, shall we say, and mm. unfortunately it keeps coming and growing and whatnot. Yes, it doesn't seem to abate. Yeah. And uh, how are you interpreting what's happening in the Middle East? Well, at this point, uh, the concern is how broad spread the conflict will be. And, uh, of course, we know there's uh, this um, horrendous uh, campaign being conducted in Gaza and, you know, the death toll of Palestinian civilians, for example, has passed 27,000. That's the latest estimate. And uh, over 2 million displaced in the Gaza Strip. So we're talking about remarkable statistics there. Um, but in addition to that, there have been attacks taking place, United States um, forces and, you know, um, uh, drone attacks and whatnot have taken place in, in Syria, in Iraq. Uh, there are constant skirmishes uh, to the north of Israel, so on the Lebanese-Israeli border, you know, encounters between the Israeli forces and uh, Hezbollah, which is a militant group that does have backing from uh, Iran. And then, of course, let's not forget the ongoing issue um, in Red Sea um, in the connection with uh, international commercial 
sea traffic that's being uh, disrupted there by the Houthi militants, mm. also backed by Iran. So it, it's, it looks very messy at the moment. <laughs> so Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, has been doing a, a tour, they called a lightning tour of the Middle East, run and appeared with the Qatari PM through a, uh, talking about a peace agreement, potentially. What are the prospects, or how do you end, what are, the, what are this war's prospects of concluding and how? Uh, well, not very good, because whenever Anthony Blinken makes uh, an unfortunate name for Secretary of State, uh, whenever he makes an appearance in the Middle East, there always seems to follow more problems. Um, and I think one of the problems is, is that the United States is in this position as being the chief sponsor of Israel. Um, even during this particular conflict, the Biden administration has made a specific point of supplying the Israeli Defense Forces. It's actually made a specific point of supplying munitions whilst trying to say, well, let's exercise restraint, shall we? So um, it's a very odd sort of state of affairs. So whilst doing that, it's almost as if the idea is, that, well, let's focus on something else in the meantime. Of course, the reason why um, Blinken is negotiating or discussing with the Qataris is that the Qataris have a direct negotiations base with, say, Hamas. Um, they need to, of course, the primary concern for the Israelis and the U.S. is the release of the hostages, the remaining Israeli hostages that are being held in Gaza. So that's the big priority. But in terms of the broader long-term solution, I'm afraid there's not really much to come because the, the, these are Band-Aid measures we're witnessing at the moment. And uh, Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is saying and it's mirrored by a lot of world leaders about uh, he hopes for a two-state solution. What is the present likelihood of that, given the environment? Uh, zilch, I'd <laughs> say. Uh, the, the, the notion of the two-state solution has been dying a very painful death for the last two decades or so, and I think the uh, the reality of all, all one needs to do is just listen to daily statements from Israeli ministers and not least uh, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who made it very clear that uh, the notion of a two-state solution is essentially a nonsense. Any Palestinian entity that's going to arise will be supervised in one form or another externally and most likely by Israeli interests, by Israeli forces, and the idea of Palestinian statehood is a dead letter. And this is coming from... You know, the Netanyahu government, which is, of course, con admittedly one of the, the more uh, radically conservative ones in, in recent years, but it is nonetheless very clear that that two-state solution is, is pantomime. It's, it's cruel pantomime that's being paraded at the moment, and it's being said and stated as a kind of a measure of distraction, but the realities on the ground suggest that, I mean, you know, let's put it this way, the uh, realities on the ground uh, where people are talking about, when I say people, I mean officials, about... Where do you relocate Palestinians? What do you do with destroyed infrastructure? Do you destroy, I mean, Hamas, if it's destroyed, well, you, what do you replace Hamas with and all this stuff? It's got nothing to do with the two-state solution at this point. Mm. Now, the Red Sea, can you explain what's going on there and uh, what the ramifications are? Well, if, uh, for your listeners to get a sense of it, the, uh, of course the passage or the transit route through the Red Sea is vital for a lot of international uh, container shipping, for example. You know, the statistics vary as to how much goes through, 10%, depending on which uh, quantities go through, be it grain, be it essentials like that. So, uh, so it is critical um, in terms of transport. Um, and the reason why it's become important here is that uh, Yemen uh, has and has this rebel government, the Houthi government, which is sponsored by uh, Tehran, by the, by the Iranians, has made an issue of targeting what they call Israeli shipping or 
Israeli flagshipping, but then also the allies of Israel. The reason being that they want to combat or rein in the business of uh, the, the incessant slaughter in Gaza. This is what they're stating. So in a funny sort of way, they're claiming a humanitarian premise in attacking this international shipping. Uh, but it also should be said that a lot of the attacks that are being made are ineffectual. There actually have been not too many strikes on actual ships. There have been attempts, but not very successful ones. And it has to be said that the lauded missile capabilities of the Houthis here have been a bit exaggerated too. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, in Middle Eastern politics, the mirage is often very much stronger than the actual uh, scene itself. Mm. And what about Tower 22? Can you explain that incident and its effect? Yes, Tower 22 is one of those in instances where many, I guarantee you that many in the United States and let alone the Allies would never have known what that was. Tower 22 is actually a, an operations base uh, that is sort of a, it's sort of near the Jordanian-Syrian border, more on the Jordan, so Jordan side, um, and it's a supply logistics base for um, Al Af base, which has also got an American presence, and that's in Syria. Uh, the reason why the these bases or these garrisons are there is to supposedly keep an eye on ISIS or Islamic State. That's another group, as we know. Um, but there is also a secondary purpose, which is to keep an eye on Iranian militants and militia, you know, sponsored militia. So the reason why Tower 22 featured recently was that there was an attack, a drone attack, um, that was mounted by Iraqi-based Iranian-sponsored militants. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a bit contorted, the whole thing. But uh, the result of it was that three U.S. service personnel died. And in response to that, the Biden administration has launched a series of airstrikes and targets in um, Iraq and Syria. And that, of course, is always really problematic because where does this go? I mean, you know, how does this resolve itself? Iran wasn't directly involved in the attacks, but the assumption is that because they're giving sponsorship to these militants, that that sort of means something there. And do we anticipate a tit-for-tat continuation? Yes, I actually think we do. There's, uh, and this is the problem with this kind of business. It's, um, I think uh, various officials have rightly called it a tinderbox. And, you know, at this particular point, there's a lot of jousting that's taking place through proxies, through militias and whatnot. But unfortunately, the, the notion of having Iran and the United States in direct confrontation is too hideous to contemplate, mm. actually. With the October 7 attack, is it likely that... The fallout was anticipated and, in effect, I suppose, almost literally war-gamed? I think to a large extent you have to say that the attacks that were initiated on October 7th were designed to put the Palestinian issue back on the map, as it were, because what had happened until that point with, for example, the Abraham Accords, you know, normalising relations between Israel and the Gulf states, for example, and also the attempts to normalise relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia... All of this was taking place, and we have to remember that the Palestinian issue was put on the back burner. Many of these states, these uh, Arab states in particular, the wealthy oil sheikdoms and whatnot, didn't particularly want to deal with the Palestinian issue. It's a, it's, it's a problem in diplomacy. The Palestinian refugee issue is seen as a problem. And this is exactly what Netanyahu was banking on. You know, So he's been banking on this for years. He's been banking on the notion that they could somehow keep the Palestinian issue on the back burner, keep Hamas, by the way, in power. This is the perverse thing. Israeli policy is caught regarding Hamas. They call it mowing the grass, which is this idea that we keep the Palestinians divided between the Palestinian Authority, which is in West Bank, 
and the Hamas authority, which is in Gaza, because they're, they're actually mortally opposed to each other, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. So it served Israel's interest for a long time. The Hamas attacks of October 7th upended this, and so that's why we see the situation we do now. All right. Well, we'll have to get you back to discuss all the unfolding nature of global affairs because, of course, it's a US election year, and that will have ramifications for the Middle East as well, will it not? Yes, absolutely. Although I have to say but what will be interesting to see is how, um, certainly from the democratic perspective, how the campaign and how the Israeli ongoing Israeli campaign will eat into the democratic vote primarily. Uh, not so much from the Republican perspective, but it will be interesting to see how that affects, for example, Biden's prospects, because that is becoming an issue in parts of the Democratic Party. All right. Well, Benoit Kempmark, International Relations Academic at RMIT University, uh, thanks very much. We'll talk again soon. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. Laconic cinephile Simone Ubaldi is here to talk movies. Morning, Simone. Good morning. What did you call me? A laconic cinephile? Laconic. I think it's an iconic. No. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing, and if it is, it's not me. Uh, hello, everybody. Hey. Hi. Did is this go? the first time that you've been on air this year? It is. Oh, Yay. cool. Welcome back. Feels good. Did you have a summer of movies? I had a summer of many movies. What a magnificent summer. I think the best summer of movies in a long while. Cool. Oh, that's yeah. lovely to hear. And the, and the chit-chat on the street would indicate that people agree with me. People are talking about films that they're super impacted by. Lots of auteurs have come out this summer. Mm. Auteur, new works by beloved auteurs. It's been bloody beautiful. Mm. Why are there so many good ones at once? Is it anything to do with the strikes? Were films held up and then all released at the one time? No, the, the timelines for release on these things are different and lots of them were kind of pre-strikes 2002. I don't think so. Mm. I think it's just coincidence. Great. But I haven't read the articles about it, so maybe yes. <laughs> maybe yes. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's been magnificent. Poor Things and um, uh, All of Us Strangers, my two personal favourites. I know okay. you guys discussed last week. Um, and Anatomy of a Fall that I'm talking about today, which has been out for a couple of weeks, but I thought, you know, we start late into the year and it's like a massive uh, award season favourite, including a handful of... Oscar nominations, which considering it's a French film is no mean feat, so definitely worth keeping in mm. the consciousness. Mm. Uh, have any of you guys seen it? I've been no. wanting to see it since I first heard about it. It's cool. It's It won the Palme d'Or last year. It's by um, a French director called Justine Trier who's made a number of films that are pretty well received and I think notably for a lot of people it stars a German actress called Sandra Huller, who made Tony Erdman, that also was a Khan favourite and quite a brilliant comedy that was um, that, that arrived here a couple of years ago. The story is about Sandra Huller plays a, a writer who um, at the beginning of the movie is being interviewed and maybe having a little flirtation uh, with a young uh, PhD student. But mid-interview, or very early in, in the interview, they're interrupted by this blaring music from upstairs. Uh, the writer explains that her husband is renovating upstairs and that he likes to play his music very loud. It is obnoxiously loud. It causes the interview to end. The young PhD student leaves. Uh, the writer and her husband, they have a son who's blind. Uh, he takes the dog out for a walk. When the boy comes back from the walk, he discovers his father lying dead 
at the foot of their French chalet in the snow. Uh, and there's a question mark over whether or not the writer done it. That's what the film is about. It is a uh, courtroom procedural. Uh, people have noted that it has kind of Hitchcockian undertones. It is mostly, and the reason why it's so successful and so fated, uh, a, an exploration of the unknowable between two people. Um, whether or not this woman is guilty is unpacked in a very, very weird uh, to me, to, to my eye, courtroom procedural, because the way they do things in France is very different from how they do things in America and Australia. Mm. It's very loose. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, it's like an open forum of people chit-chatting <laughs> and jumping in whenever they want. That's how they do it in France, apparently. Anyway, uh, you know, the writer is basically forced to defend herself, her relationship, her lies about the relationship, her work... Her, her works of fiction and how they intertwine with uh, what may or may not have happened between her and her husband. Um, and it it compels you to sit there with ambiguity, mm. with, with, the, with the fact of not knowing what is between people and not knowing what is inside a person's mind. And there's an extra layer as well, which another critic noted, I was just reading this morning, where language is kind of a factor in confusing... Um, what is known, what you can know, because um, Sandra Hull is German. Uh, the film is set in France. They speak English for most of the film. So, in fact, it's actually mm. not... It's mostly an English-language film. Um, but sometimes in the courtroom, she is... Well, the court, the court is actually... The trial is um, in French. She sometimes falls back on... She sometimes speaks in English and she sometimes attempts to explain herself in French, but having limited French, it means that the way she's portraying herself, her intentions and her truth are complicated by uh, limited language. So there's that extra factor as well, which is super interesting. I wonder why there aren't more films, or maybe there have been, I haven't been aware of them, but if the, I think from Year 12 legal studies is inquisitorial versus adversarial legal systems. Uh, so we, we have more of an adversarial system and Thank France you. has inquisitorial. Is and what we call it? It seems like there's more drama there. There's, there's a, there, I mean, we've made plenty of drama out of our adversarial, adversarial oh, system, yeah, I would but say. But maybe that's played out. But it it's basically like a rolling conversation. Mm. It feels more like there, yeah, you, if you, you know, it's like bowling the ad. Again, like I've heard these words before, this is revelatory for me. The adversarial system, it's like bowling with the bumper bars on, like you're trying to mm. achieve something, but there's all these rules that are keeping things very rigid, whereas what's depicted in this film in this kind of free-flowing conversation is very much more conversational and philosophical. And the advocates of the lawyers are able to post questions immediately that would appear to the audience, challenge things immediately as they're appearing in the minds of the audience. So in that sense, it feels much more natural and realistic as an inquisitive process, mm. as like it trying to examine the subject. But it also is like, you know, you just sort of wonder what the principles are and what the kind of guidance is and where the boundaries are to what people can say. Because, like, for example, the chief prosecutor makes a lot of snarky comments with regard to Sandra Hull's testimony 
<laughs> interesting. I mean, all of that is obviously having an impact on the jury that's assembled. And he just feels a bit catty. You're like, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, not, you know, he's, he's trying to sow doubt. But he's sowing doubt in a way where it's like, okay, just settle down. Yeah, just like, you're, ex- the... you're waiting for someone to say objection. But yeah, exactly. Let's just slide. Does exactly. it kind of stretch your belief, I guess, maybe? Watching it, did it pull you out of the story a little bit? Being like, oh, no, I was no. just like, this okay. is the thing I didn't know about the world. Okay, sure. I was like, oh, that's how they do it in France. Yeah, Interesting. Right. Yeah. I just didn't know. Um, no, the whole thing is really earthy and grounded. I think the thing that is... So compelling and has drawn so much. Te- I mean, first of all, everyone in it is magnificent. Sandra Hall is magnificent. Uh, the kid whose name is uh, Milo Grainer, who plays the teenage son Daniel, is magnificent. Um, but everyone is really wonderful. Everyone feels very true, and no one feels like they're trying to advance a philosophical position within the film, or, or is a tool of a thriller. They don't. They feel like uh, real people who the only thing that I would say for me didn't land in a big emotional way is that I didn't really feel tossed in a sea of like, oh, she did it. Oh, no, she didn't do it. Oh, you know, sometimes Mm. you get an intensity of watching one of these films about ambiguity. And a really good example that's out at the moment is May, December, the Todd Haynes film, which I don't know if you guys have talked about yet, but sort of looks back at this uh, inappropriate relationship that happened in the 1990s and tries to figure out whether or not the woman who had a relationship with a young boy is morally evil or truly in love with the boy that she stayed with. You feel tossed around by that movie. You feel really impacted and you feel like you want to have a position even though you're unsure and you're kind of cling to something. With this movie, it's all very neutral. Um, and because of that, it's like we can't, the whole, my experience was I can't know. We can't know from the information we have. Uh, I don't know how anyone thinks that they can know. Relationships are unknowable. What (laughs) happened that day is unknowable. And so because of that, it was a very um, reserved and removed emotional experience. But intellectually, it's super ripe. There's a lot of stuff in there that you can take away with. Maybe a little bit. I felt like I was a good girl who had seen the important French film. <laughs> you know, there's like a, it's like two and a half hours long, which is good for which is a long time for a film that's that's just a um, interpersonal drama and doesn't have significant kind of chapters. But it, you know, it is pretty brilliant. You just look at it and you're like, everyone, you know, everyone is in this movie is quite extraordinary and the script is really subtle and the performances are really amazing. How much of the two and a half hours is in the courtroom? Mm, a lot of it. I mean, look, it moves from like conversations between her and her lawyer, conversations between her and her son when they're at home. Mm. So there's a bit of domestic. It's not strictly two hours in the courtroom, but it's a fairly intimate world. Mm-hmm. Some of that intimate world is in a chalet and near Grenoble in the Alps. So, you know, it's not mm. ugly. And would it, uh, this is maybe an off air question, but would it have worked as a play? I thought it had been a play. Right. I get a real strong sense of like this has been adapted from stage, but it wasn't. It was written by Trier for the screen. But yes, that is that is the vibe without sometimes the heaviness of a theatrical work that's adapted for screen and you just know that it's been written to be projected on stage. Mm. This doesn't have that vibe, but it does have that the psychological dynamic of the really great plays. Because I think about the early, I don't know, midnight, there were lots of courtroom dramas it, in all, the movies. Grisham, all the John Grisham books. Yeah, uh, yeah, is the Pelican Brief one of them? Or mm, yeah. yeah, and yes. and but but then television 
all became out of the courtroom. Yeah. So I was like, well, why do you, why do we need a courtroom in cinema when television every night of the week there's drama in the courtroom? And and but and but but now this is like ooh. Because you get two and a half hours mm. of, and it's not really about the procedural stuff. There is a lot of really interesting, almost like verge of satirical, um, forensic moments in the film where they're tra- like dropping dummies out of the window to try and replicate the fall. But it's not really about that. Mm. It's about the dynamics between people. It's about the unknowable interiority of relationships. No matter how much your best friend tells you what it's like for them to be with their partner, you can never really know. And you're like, why did they stay with that person? Because that person's a, an idiot. Mm. Because your, your best friend's not talking to you about the minutiae of the other 23 hours of the day. Have I got a <laughs> <of your laughs> tent? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. What is, it's about what is between two people. And, in fact, there's some very direct language from Sandra Huller about that. You ta- you're taking this one incident and you're blowing it out and, and trying to turn that into our entire relationship which is, I think, is what an American courtroom drama would do. Yep. Take one incident and make that the truth. They keep coming back to the fact that one incident is not the truth of Stop people's s- full lives. Extrapolating mm. narratives from a moment. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Mm. And, it's and, actually amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and ambiguity seems there. like it's having a moment as well. It, it, in, a, in a world where people yeah. can be uh, dogmatic or ideological, it's good to see art that swims in the grey. You make a very good point. You make a very good point. And certainly some of my, again, May, December, all of us strangers arguably on the same level, um, and Anatomy of a Fall, I, and I'll talk about it in a couple of weeks, but Zone of Interest, mm. there's a lot of films kind of swimming in this ocean. And you're right, it's a massive relief <laughs> from the black and white shrieking of Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Anatomy of a Fall, directed by Justine Triet. Yeah. Okay, in cinemas now. Very exciting to have you back, Simone. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Digger's back with Down and Dirty. G'day, Digger. Good morning, everybody. How's your summer? Great. Great summer. Busy, out in the world. You went tubing? Went tubing. Do you have a uh, beer with you when you tube? (laughs) Yes. Nice. (laughs) Um, Isn't that that what those, what are they called, rashies are for? (laughs) You can fit four four cans down a rashie. (laughs) And so so you, and is a tube, uh, so a big rubber tube, a ring? Big, yeah, tractor tyre tube. Yeah. Well, it depends. We had different sizes for different people. You could choose. Uh Because there was such good rapids, you could, after a few goes, you'd found out, which ones were better <gasps> through the rapids. Right. And with the big ones would get caught on a rock or a tree or something. So, yeah, it was awesome. That's incredible. <laughs> and this is outside the ACT somewhere. Yeah, yeah, just outside of Tumut. Oh. I don't want to give away the secret location. No, exactly. No, I do not. Awesome. Dare. Uh, so what about in a gardening or horticultural sense? How's uh, fun to see? Doing all sorts of stuff. I was recycling kegs. Mm. Started doing a bit of that this year. Oh, right. <laughs> Go the culprit. Um, but none of those facilities fit a keg. Did you know that? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so out in the garden. Um, not bad year for veggies because it wasn't hot. Mm. So you remember they were all predicting heat, 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 going to freak out. So we've been away for a while mm. and came home thinking, oh, everything's going to be shagged. Everything's great. Not a problem. Um, I'm assuming that, you know, because we were out of Melbourne for a while, that it was kind of similar. No real super 
30, we had that 37 day last week, mm. but that was the only one really through Jan, wasn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. It was all, you know, pretty much in and around 30. Yeah, I was thinking of you. What was your stat about what, Melbourne had, had a... Well, meteorologists, <laughs> I think we need to have a meeting. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, that was nowhere near what was predicted. Mm. So super mild. Um, Cracking year for all the cucurbits. I don't know if anyone's listening. I'd love to hear their, you know, harvest reports uh, about what was really good. But, um, you know, so the cucumbers and the pumpkins and the zucchinis, mm. it was prime temperature for them and they just excelled. We're picking cucumbers, kind of a bit sick of them now. It's a weird thing to say, but cucumbers are gone off their head. Mm. Um Magical, absolutely magical. Zucchini went nuts, but then uh, then you leave it for two days and they're they're the size of your arm. Yeah. Oh, so then wow. you can't eat them when they're that big. You you can eat them, but you know you, it's a different type of zucchini slice. You yeah. Know? Sorry <laughs> to be annoying, but does the flavour dissipate the bigger it gets? Yeah, they get flowery. Right. Yeah, yeah they get a bit powdery and a bit flowery. So um, it depends. You know, you just got to come up with new dishes for it. But yeah, it's rare, in peak time now, second week of February, where everyone's over zucchini <laughs> and everyone's offering you zucchini. <laughs> Because they're done. They've had, you know, 45 zucchini. Like, eh. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so the, you're, what happens when there's a glut? Do people, can you anticipate a glut? Yeah, absolutely. So as the season was progressing you, and, you, you know, in the first probably six to eight weeks of the summer veggie crop, you see what explodes and what's moving faster than everything else. So then you can anticipate, okay, it's looking good. We've got to start thinking of zucchini recipes or shit, I've got to sterilise some jars because we've got to do pickling. And so that's traditionally when you get a glut of something, either use it for bartering <laughs> because, you know, maybe the rats have got your tomatoes mm-hmm. and so you don't have any tomatoes. So you could then barter with someone for tomatoes because you've got excess zucchini. Can't mm. the rats just eat my zucchini instead of my tomatoes? They're sick of them too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, they've got a corner store every 15 metres. You know? uh, and what about the work that you do during summer? What what rounds up or what's coming to a close? So now is we're hitting peak season. We've, had, we've been sitting on our ass for a while just harvesting and eating great veggies, but now's the time to get cracking. So it's summer pruning season. Mm. So I've started climbing ladders and taking out... Uh, those of you with fruit trees would know they've, they've put on all this what's called apical growth or water shoots, big long stems that have resulted from heavy pruning in winter last year. Um, so it was all that stored energy and they you know, they want to be trees. And so summer pruning is a time just to calm them down a little bit because they're in fruiting season and the weather is now going to start declining, believe it or not. I had to wipe a little bit of mm. not frosty kind of stuff off the windscreen just to get here this Dew. morning. Yeah. Dew, that's what it's called. Thanks, Mon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that's a kicker. That's a big sign. It's like, okay, we're on a downward shift now, believe it or not. Even though, yeah, we're going to get some more 30-degree days, but that just means clear skies, which means more dew in the morning. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's time to slow the trees down. And if we, So if you prune them now, they'll just start waning and you won't get the big response, big growth back. It'll be very small and it's just a good time to keep your fruit trees tidy. When you use word energy before, can you explain that... that- the pent-up energy or in a horticultural sense? So your deciduous plants don't actually go into hibernation. People think that they actually shut off. They're not. All they're doing is that they can't photosynthesise. Because the weather's so cold, they have to drop the leaves in order not to save the leaves, which sounds a little bit weird. Mm. So they stored all that chlorophyll out of them, and that's why the buds in deciduous plants are so plump, because they've got stored chlorophyll. So they've just essentially put their heart rate right down to survive the winter, but they're not turned off. So the engine's still running, it's still idling, and so there is still nutrient and water being pumped throughout the stems, but it's not producing leaves. 
So it's just holding, 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 and eventually they wait for that temperature shift, and that's why they explode so quickly because it's been three, four, five, depending on where you live and how how long the winter has been. Mm. That's how long they've been waiting to burst. You know, it's like when you wait when you need to have a pee. There's, <laughs> there's a limit, mate. <laughs> um, questions? Some well, it's not a question as much, but they just said tomatoes still green. I still have some green tomatoes. That's yeah. that's all good, even though you think summer's on the downward. Yeah, yeah, I I didn't plant till probably the second or mid December, mm-hmm. um, so I'm late. You know, all my students send me photos like smart ass. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where you start collecting data about the varieties that you chose and counting days. This is you know garden diary stuff that we talked about last year. Is okay. The one that the, the variety that I chose is sixty seven days. I might need to look for something that's fifty if I'm going to plant in. You know, mid-December. Mm, okay. But again, let's just blame the meteorologists because we should still be getting 40-degree days. If mm. we think back to 1977, this time in February, we'll be getting five days of 40 degrees and summer still had six weeks to go. Mm, yeah, right. Okay. Uh, there is a summer-related pruning question. It's getting towards the end of summer and seems my efforts to control coddling moth in my apple tree have mm. failed again. Is there something you can recommend? Will a very hard prune next June do it or potentially do my tree in? Nah, so the coddling must spend winter in the ground. So the, the best thing is to find someone with chooks or get some chooks or some, you know, some ground predators um, to get them at larval stage when, in, when they're in the ground. Uh, if outside of that, if you're scared of birds, then, you know, there's a, a, a technique called grease trapping. So putting a sticky layer around the trunk of the tree at the end of winter. And so as the grubs kind of climb up the tree, come out of the ground, they get stuck in it. So could be absolutely anything, mm. anything how, sticky. How commonly are chooks used as predators? Yeah, all the time. I reckon, you know, someone out there, COVID killed a wonderful organisation called Booker Chook, mm-hmm. um, where you could hire chickens. Really? True. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you could. they were rescued birds and so you could hire them by the week or the month and they'd supply you with little temporary housing. Mm. Just if you were thinking about chickens but not quite sure about it mm. and obviously their hope is that, you know, in that short time you'd fall in love with them and then you keep them. Mm. Yeah, and you, and you could them. keep the one you booked. Yeah. Mm. Oh, there's so a whole cool. pretty woman in the chook world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but anyone that's got, you know, if you put the word out, you know, with all your socials or just in your, you know, your friends group, people who've got chooks, they'd lend you some chooks. You set up a little bit of temporary little accommodation underneath your fruit trees. They only need to be there for a couple of days and they'll get them. Mm. All right. Um, someone suggests pickling cucumbers, which you said. Uh, black cherry aphids, they said. I thought I'd cut it all off, but it's back. What do I do? Yeah, so that's the hard part. Um, this is where... Cutting it off is probably the worst thing you could do because oh. then it produces new growth as a response and black aphid only eat new growth. So it would have been better just to sacrifice that first wave and if it depends on how high it is, just manually get you know, get your hands in some gloves or whatever and just wipe them off. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because pruning it off, the tree produces double the new growth, which doubles the infestation. Mm. So you've got to take the hit and get a little bit dirty. So mm. just... just- Pull them off the hands. Wipe them, them off. Yeah, okay. it depends on how bad the stop, infestation stop is. Stop chopping it. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, if, you, if your tree's, you know, eight metres tall, then probably it's a bit more difficult. Yeah. It's a transplant question because there's a house and garden next door is being demolished. It has a beautiful two-and-a-half-metre crepe myrtle. Mm-hmm. Would it survive a transplant to the same position into the other front yard once it stops flowering? Uh, yeah, it's a tricky time of year to do it. Ideally, if it could wait until winter, but it depends on what day that the backhoes are going to move in to do the demolishing. Mm. If you could hold till winter, that would be better. 
doing it now, look, two and a half metre tree, you're going to have to take a, a root ball probably about a metre and a half wide. So that's a fair dig, and you're going to be going down at least five or 600 mil. So either you have to do it stealthily all night and you're going to look like you're <laughs> burying a body. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, most important one, look, give it a crack. It's going to get you know hit by the backhoe anyway, so... Give it a crack, dig it up. Most importantly is that you hydrate it before mm, you do it. A super ball. soak the day before. It's just like going into any surgery. Hydration is important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one last question or two more here. What Can't get cannas to flower in pots? Mm, cannas. So um, they're in the ginger family. Is it C-A-N-N-A? Yes. Um, yeah, so the canna family, gorgeous. Used in a lot of um, gardens, especially in rain gardens because they have a super soaker root system. It's just a phosphorus issue, so liquid fertilised phosphorus that will get them to flower bud. Okay. That's, um, that's probably leached out of your potting mix if the potting mix is old. Oh, why are cabbage moths everywhere? Yeah, weird one. Mm. I want to talk to an entomologist. They are going crazy. This is, oh, God, I'll get in trouble here. But I gave my boys badminton racket. Oh, awesome. Really? Yeah. Awesome. Oh, for the moss. Okay. <laughs> it was just nostalgia. Topic. It was something my mum did for us kids. Yeah. When we were little and there's infestation of insects in the garden, it's like, here's badminton, see you in an hour. Oh. Um, because they are crazy. It's an explosion of population. All I can imagine... It's not even cabbage season. No. All I can imagine is temperatures in New South Wales were perfect for all the, the eggs that were waiting mm-hmm. to hatch. They hatched and then northern winds brought them down. That's my guess. But talk to your entomologist. Yeah. Mm. It's like a totem tennis yeah. for... And for oh, gardeners. Well, they didn't go back. <laughs> There's no back and forth. Uh, what about gall wasps? Oh, God, they continue. Yeah, whenever you see it, when in doubt, cut it out. Because I feel like most, don't, wouldn't most citrus or lemon trees have it and you can still produce fruit with gall wasp? Yeah, yeah. It's just that over the long term, because it's a blocked artery, it will kill that stem. So it's the sort of thing. Just chop it off. When in de- Well, how long do you leave a blocked artery? You know, that, that's the way I look at it. Mm. It's gonna, it's gonna get you in the end. So you might as well take it out now and start some regrowth. Okay. Because they don't hatch until August, so you've got you know a few months then of of regrowth to come before mm. you have to check it again. Was this morning the first morning that you noticed the dew? For me, yeah, yeah, back at my way, and you know, and on that southern side, you know, next one has got a big head, so it actually would have been substantial enough to hit my car in that distance. So yeah, it was yeah interesting out in the north. Mm. I'm not ready to say goodbye to No, it's beautiful. Autumn mornings are the best mornings anywhere in the world. Melbourne autumn mornings are the best. Bring it on. Let's just fast forward the calendar. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's check in in a couple of weeks. Is that all right? Yeah, we'll do. Oh, digger, thank you. Pleasure. Triple R. Friday Funny Bugger this week. We're joined by Raw Comedy winner, infrastructure critic and budding strongly worded letter writer, Prue Blake. Morning, Prue. <laughs> Morning. Hello, Breakfasters. I've never written a strongly worded letter, but you're right, I will. Yes. <laughs> to this show. You just got, got that energy about you. I know. I got off stage the other day and the host of the stand-up show said... Well, that's Prue Blake, everyone. You can tell she's a reader. I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> Is it because you've got yeah, yeah, glasses? glasses. What, did, what do you think gave the game away? Yeah, I don't know. It must have been my like incredible vocabulary or... 
Just a real sense of narrative <laughs> in my seven-minute stand-up set. There must have been something, but I thought, I don't, yeah, I don't know if that's a slam or not. I feel like it's a compliment. Yeah, a reader. Yeah. And the worst part is I am a reader. You're like, uh, man, you've picked me. Yeah, damn. You have no mystery about Wait, you. Yeah, the element of surprise. Not. Get rid like... of your glasses. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're oh. cool. <laughs> oh, my God, she's stunning. <laughs> Take off the glasses. Wow. Take the ponytail out too. <laughs> the makeup is complete. <laughs> uh, I, I, I choose to be insulted on your behalf. Oh, thank oh. you. Yeah. Mm. As someone that's always identified well, I, as a reader. I just, <laughs> no, I just, the, the Bill Hicks... Routine about it. looks like we got ourselves a reader. He's in a ca- he's in a yeah. waffle house, and someone says to him, "What are you reading for? Yeah. Not what are you reading, but what are you reading for? What are you reading for? <laughs> <laughs> to escape from this depressing reality. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. why I'm reading. Um, but I do have plenty to talk to my breakfasters about. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, missed you over your big break. Thank you. Um, and just you know, life I think is tough at the moment. This week I've had a tough run of things, and it's questioned my faith in high density inner city living. Mm-hmm. Because I had house parties all weekend, followed it up by two nights of sporadic car alarm from uh, 1 a.m. onwards to 6 a.m. Oh, I see. You weren't in attendance at the house parties. They were keeping no, you No, I up. wasn't invited. I do think if they're on my street, I should be allowed to turn up. A hundred percent. Yes. You I know when you walk that. past one, you're going, well... Sometimes you could. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I, the parties you can just pop in and no one knows. It's just confidence, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But if you've got it, you can't wear your glasses. I can't like, wear my glasses. She's not here to party. In a book. She's here to read. Yeah. <laughs> and there's got to be a certain amount of people. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be 10 plus yeah. for you to just wander in the street, to... I think. <laughs> I'd love to walk into a party. Anyone read the new Anne Patcher? <laughs> <laughs> It's quite bombing. <laughs> okay, so you had two house parties, car, car alarms. alarms. And then, of course, an earthquake last night that I heard you mentioning mm. earlier. Mm. And you're going, man, I don't want to be up high for this anymore. No. I'm tired of it. Mm. You want to head out into the you, – now you're pastures. in favour of urban sprawl. You want to head out? <laughs> <laughs> Underneath mm. the tunnels. Yeah, now I'm in favour of urban sprawl, which is horrible to say as a town planner. But mm. I've tried, you know, I just – the weirdest thing to me is that you learn all of this theory and you believe it and then you realise that none of it's real and it doesn't matter. Like, you become a town planner but you can't – live a good town planner's life okay why i should be living in the best neighborhood in the best apartments yeah. and it's vibrant and it's bustling and it's in walkable. a city and walkable yeah i'm catching pt but i'm not doing any of that why not i think i'm like you know the stylist who dresses like shit uh, or, you know yeah. the, the chef who, who hates to cook the chef who hates to cook the therapist whose kids are a mess <laughs> you know <Yeah. laughs> i think it's if you know too much it ruins everything And the worst thing that happened to me, I keep reflecting on when I used to live in a townhouse development. Because you go to uni, you do town planning, I was living at home. And then I moved out and I moved into these townhouses. And I thought, this is what town planning is all about. This is exactly the sort of thing I would approve. Um, It was 100 townhouses all on the one street. They all had identical fronts identical layouts except some were mirror imaged Mm -hmm. which I found out when I was going to the bathroom in my ensuite and I made eye contact with a man going to the bathroom in his ensuite at the exact same time (laughs) because we just had the exact reverse I mean that's overlooking a town planner should have caught it and (laughs) to know the error is the worst part of it all and I lived with these two boys and they didn't believe that we had to lock the front door even though it was in Northcote it's not like it was in 
you know, a safe, you know, quiet area. Mm. And so they would never lock the front door as if they couldn't imagine that on this road, this street that's been heavily developed with hundreds of identical looking townhouses, there's no way that someone could get to that street maybe after, you know, three or four pints, Mm. which, I mean, I'm not against three or four pints. Mm, Beer is my only exception to the rule that all drinks should be zero calories. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big exception. I'll I'll grant it. But as if someone couldn't get back after three or four pints, that's 1.5 to 2 litres of beer in their body. Their bladder is near bursting. They can't count the houses that they go along as well as they normally could. Mm. They maybe put their key in a lock a little bit early. They walk up the stairs, get a glass of water in a kitchen that's on the other side of the house, but they're a bit tipsy, they're not noticing. Mm. Go into the bathroom, take a slash, pull back the covers of what they think is their bed, and I'm already in there. Yes. And that's how I met my fiance. Uh, (laughs) It's not implausible, is it? Uh, And when people, when you experience mistakes out in the world from your perspective, do you sense that they arise out of ignorance or indifference? I think it's ignorance from professional. I feel like we refuse to identify any problems anymore and it's all glossed over with a bit of paint Mm -hmm. or like oh look at that mural over there instead look at the street art and so I feel like I'm I'm walking around I'm the only one with my eyes open yeah Yeah, it's just like distraction techniques everywhere yeah it's like um, shiny things like we're all magpies you know they famously (laughs) talk about in Disneyland they paint the infrastructure they don't want people to see and go away green no Oh, I mean, I thought everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every time I talk about things from the show, I'm like, everyone knows this. Mm-hmm. Go away green is the colour that the eye kind of glosses over. <gasps> and so they'll paint things like uh, telecommunications infrastructure or backstage stuff. Mm-hmm. this green colour so you don't see it. Because the eye has some history historical or evolutionary attitude that's, oh, there's just trees or Yeah, it's something. just kind of bland, like just kind of washes oh. into mm. background. It's so interesting. Yeah. I just looked it you up You looked up the colour? Yeah. yeah. And totally. you're like, oh, Prue, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see it. <laughs> and I was... Can we talk about the fact that no one really knows what um, a town planning yeah, like, no actually does? Because I was with Prue in like a writing room the other day yeah. and just everyone just kept talking to her about roundabouts. And yeah, she's like, like, okay, I don't work in roads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everyone's like, so it's where we put the roundabouts. I'm going, that's traffic engineering. And they're going, okay, so it's what the buildings look like. That is architecture. <laughs> so what do you do? Town planners, they're kind of like the bisexuals of the built environment. You know, we take a a little bit of the art of architecture, we pull that into the public realm. We take a little bit of the science of traffic engineering, we pull that in, mm. and we try and think of everything as a whole. So not just one building, not just one road, but how it all functions mm. as a network. Did and you play, um, is it just like playing SimCity? It's SimCity, yeah, <laughs> SimCity as a job. So do all the town planners get together with the global one government to discuss the 15-minute cities? This is what I wanted to happen. <laughs> yeah. I thought I would do town planning, you work for council, you get invited into the tunnels under the city <laughs> and you start gambling everyone's race. <laughs> but the invite is yet to appear. Yeah, right. I'm going, I won't tell anyone, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Let me in. <laughs> it's like the house parties. You know, yeah. running into that. Maybe the house parties are in the tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> They're in the tunnel, I'll come in. Anyone read the local government act recently? <laughs> now your show coming up is called Concrete Pig. My show is called Concrete Pigs. It's all about whether the things we're doing in cities, the art, the you know, parklets, whether it's actually good or if it's all just lipstick on a concrete pig. That's yeah. what I want to say in the show. Have you? What's your view on Docklands? 
horrible. Right. The biggest mistake of our time. But now that it's happened, what do you what, what do? You do? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the problem with cities. I mean, the infrastructure is quite hard to hide. Paint it all, go away yeah. green, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the big wheel, go away <laughs> green. <laughs> it never happens. Like, yeah, they got that wheel down quick. <laughs> no, it's still uh-huh. there. But I have been, um, you know, you can't fully stamp out the town planner, so I've been doing a few trials and I'm giving someone in my audience a thumb clicker to count the number of laughs I get in the show. I'm up to 300, which is more than a laugh a minute. Um, so I think you should buy Put a ticket. on the poster. Um, yeah, I'll put it in the poster. Well, I'm not going to be happy until I'm at... 3,000, you know, laugh a second kind of territory. <laughs> a clicker, for real? Yeah, for real. Is you want to, are you doing that the whole time? Yeah, or? I'm going to do it. I've got a spreadsheet, so I'm tracking how the laughs are going. I'll know what's a good show, what's a bad show definitively. Gee. Got data. Yeah, I've like got data. It. And is there a, a critical mass of laughter to, you know, if it's a one titter in the corner that doesn't constitute? Oh, I'm not going to be that mean to myself. It's all in. It's all in. Even a little like, huh. Counter. It's in. It's in. <laughs> I love that. And yeah. what do people use clickers for? So it, they use it normally. There's one um, architect, kind of urban planner, king, king of the field, Jan Gahl, um, Danish. Everyone loves him. Very, you know, black turtleneck, thick glasses. And he'll send people out with a clicker to count how people use public infrastructure. So how many p- people sit on a bench mm. and then they make a decision at the end with all that data. Okay. That was a high number of people sitting on a bench. So we need a second bench. Yeah. And I think, yeah, probably you could have just looked. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but if there's a thin, tall bloke with dark rim glasses and a turtleneck watching you sitting down. Yeah. You're... Sit on the bench a few times and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> you're about to become data. And, uh, and, and what else? Is there any other, uh, props or anything that you have to bring for for this show oh there's props baby okay. oh there's secret props i've got street art i've i've kind of gentrified the stage oh, oh that's, <laughs> that's beautiful uh okay well we'll keep an eye out for it concrete pig concrete pigs at the melbourne international comedy festival good Please on you come along through blake we'll see you again soon see you soon triple r Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.